You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. On January 23rd, uh, LeBron James reached a really incredible milestone. He became one of, one of the a very few number of players that ever was able to reach 30,000 points in his career. And he did that on the evening of, of, of uh, January uh, the 23rd. But what was really noteworthy was not what happened that evening, but what happened earlier that day. You see, LeBron James decided to send out an Instagram message to himself. And this is what he wrote. King James, want to be the first to congratulate you on this accomplishment, achievement tonight that you'll reach. Only a handful has reached, seen it too. And while I know it's never been a goal of yours from the beginning, try, please try to take a moment for yourself on how you've done it. The house you're about to be a part of has only six seats in it as of now, but one more will be added, and you should be very proud and honored to be invited inside. There's so many people to thank who has helped this even become possible, so thank them all, and when you finally get your moment alone to yourself, smile, look up to the higher skies and say, thank you. So with that said... Congrats again, young king. One love. Hashtag strive for greatness. Rocket emoticon. Hashtag the kid from Akron. Crown emoticon. This is what we call a humble brag. And social media has sort of created this, this, this way of speaking where we, where we sort of backwards compliment ourselves or congratulate ourselves, but LeBron James on that day really took this to a whole other level. He actually is congratulating himself. A one commentator described it as, this is LeBron in the present congratulating LeBron from the past on something LeBron from the future was going to do later that night. And notice how the hashtag said, strive for a greatness and 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 this idea of a house that he was being invited into now we're in this series called searching for a king lebron james nickname is king james and so here we have a king talking about greatness boasting about being invited into a house but in second samuel 7 today we're going to see a different king not king james king david but he's also going to be talking about a house And he's also going to be talking about greatness, true greatness. Greatness is not celebrating what we have achieved. True greatness is celebrating what Christ has achieved on our behalf. And as we turn now to 2 Samuel chapter 7, I need to tell you that the passage that we are about to read is quite possibly the most important passage in the entire Old Testament. That what is said here in 2 Samuel 7 reverberates all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, straight through the New Testament, right to the very end of the book of Revelation. This passage is so crucial. So with that by means of an introduction, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1. It says, now when the king lived in his house, 
and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. This all started with a noble plan. David has a noble plan. He, he realizes that, you know, in the previous chapter, the Ark of the Covenant was brought into this um, into the city of Jerusalem with all of this celebration, but then the ark went into a tent, and then David went home to this beautiful palace that he had built from. He said, there's a disconnection here. I, I shouldn't be living in a house if God is living in a tent. I want to build a house for God. There was a noble plan. And sometimes God puts noble plans in our hearts. And, 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 and that's where this story begins. Maybe you're thinking, you know what, I, I, I've been unusually fruitful in my, in my job or in my employment this year. And, and, and things seem to be going really well. God has really blessed me. And, and so I'm going to use some of, that, some of that income that God has given me. I'm going to use that for the kingdom. Or maybe you're thinking, you know what, i got all this leisure time. Why am I spending it all on myself? I'm going to get involved in my church and start volunteering and serving. Or maybe you're thinking, i got all these unbelievers in my neighborhood or in my, in my office or, or, or the shop at work, and I'm going to start a Bible study to start introducing these people to Jesus. It starts with a noble plan. And so David wants to act on that plan, and the prophet Nathan says, go for it. In, in, in verse 3, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But Nathan kind of spoke too soon. You see, Nathan's a prophet, so his job was sort of to speak on behalf of God, but he sort of spoke out of turn here, because in verse 4, God's like, you should have checked with me ahead of time, bro. Verse 4, he says, But the, the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And so the answer is no. David's not going to be the one that's going to build the house. And David's going to receive this bad news. And here, here's, here's the truth. Sometimes we do have noble plans. Sometimes we feel a call to ministry or desire to serve or, 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 or even to, to go to the mission field or, or to be involved, to start some sort of project or something. And sometimes God tells us, not you. Sometimes God tells us, not yet. And sometimes not all of our noble plans fit into God's plan. So it, 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 sometimes it, 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 it's a timing thing and we need, to, we need to trust him in those ways. He goes on in verse 6, I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, all the people of Is moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's like, I never asked for that. Verse 8, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over all. My people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So God kind of, he, he goes back and he talks about how he's related to uh, the people of Israel in general. Then he talks specifically about how he had worked in David's life. 
And then look what God does at the end of verse 11. He says, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David's initial reaction might be, but I already have one. That's why I came up with this noble plan in the first place. But God is actually being quite clever here. Hands up, we all agree God's clever. And, uh, and so uh, God is playing on this idea of house. David wants to build a house, a physical structure. But God is talking about a household. He's talking about David's family. He's talking about his lineage, about his descendants. And then God is now going to give David an eternal promise. Started with a noble plan, and then God gives David an eternal promise. And this is the promise, this is the promise that I believe is one of the most important passages in the entire Old and New Testament. He says in verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his kingdom forever. So here's, here's, the, here's the promise. that One of David's offspring is going to be the ones who, who will build that house. And God will make it possible for David's offspring to reign on the throne forever. Ever. Verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. There's going to be this unique relationship between the offspring of David and the God Almighty. He's going to relate to them the way a father relates to his son. It goes on in verse 14, when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. So God says, listen, and, and when your offspring mess up, they're going to be disciplined. But it won't be like Saul 2.0. You know, Saul messed up so bad that Saul was cast aside and David was chosen. No, God is giving his guarantee, his promise, that no matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, that the offspring of David will remain on the throne. It won't finish the way it finished for Saul. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the eternal promise. This is referred to as uh, the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. Covenants are these agreements that God makes with his people at important times in, this, in, in the unfolding history of God's saving plan. The first covenant, the first time the word covenant is used, is in the time of Noah. After the flood, God made a covenant with Noah. Then a few chapters later, God made a covenant with Abraham, setting aside, he made a promise to Abraham's Offspring. Then the, the offspring grew. Abraham's family grew, and then they ended up being enslaved in Egypt. But God set them free. And then at Mount Sinai, there, God made a covenant with the whole nation of Israel. And then within that nation, God is now making a specific covenant, a promise with David. But the word covenant isn't used in this passage. But in Psalm 89, talking about this event, it says, I found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever. And his throne as the days of the heavens. So Psalm 89 uses the word 
Old Covenant and summarizes the content of what God promised in 2 Samuel 7. That's why it's called the Davidic Covenant. Now, will God be faithful in fulfilling this promise? Who is this offspring who is going to build this house, who is going to reign forever? And so what we need to do is follow the line of David. And so we're going to do that. I want you to turn to the next book in your Bible, to the book of 1 Kings. And we're going to plot sort of a, a historical uh, uh, um, timeline. So we're, 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 we're leaving 2 Samuel. We're now in the book of 1 Kings. And we're, we're introduced to uh, David's son, uh, Solomon. And look at 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 1. It says, as soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord. Well, there it is. That's David's offspring, and he's, he's already got the first part of the promise done. He's built the house of the Lord. And then it says, and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build. And look at this, verse 2. The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. Verse 5, this is what he said to him when he appeared to him. I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So God appears to Solomon and goes back to, points back to the promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So could Solomon be this offspring, the one who will reign forever and ever? We'll turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. Of 1 Kings chapter 11 in your Bible, just two chapters over. It says in verse 1, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. That, 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 he had 2,000 in-laws. His wives turned away his heart. Verse 4, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Look down at verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Is this Saul 2.0? Solomon has sinned, he's failed. God says, I'm tearing the kingdom from you. That's exactly what happened to Saul. The kingdom was going to be torn. But look, verse 12, yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom." But I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So Solomon fails massively. But even though Solomon fails, God is faithful. Faithful to the promise that he made to David. That there would always be a king on the throne. But... Solomon, because he failed, God needed to discipline him. That was part of the promise. Do you remember what, what uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 14 and 15 says? I'll be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Look at verse 14 of 1 Kings 11. The Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad. 
This is the rods of men. These are the stripes of the sons of men. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 23, God also raised up an adversary to him, Rezin. And so God is in bringing this discipline upon Solomon in the later years of his life. Look at verse 26, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He's another, he's another adversary. Then you get to chapter 11, verse 43, it says Solomon slept with his fathers. So Solomon died. He's not going to be the one who's going to reign forever. And it goes on to say, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Now remember, God said, Solomon, I'm not going to tear the kingdom away from you while you're living, but after you die, I'm going to tear it away from your son. And Rehoboam was his son. Rehoboam was very unwise. And, and uh, Rehoboam was arrogant and, and mistreated the people. And remember Jeroboam, one of those, uh, one of those um, adversaries of Solomon? Well, Jeroboam leads a revolution overthrowing the, the kingship of, of Rehoboam. So in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 20, after they're fed up with Rehoboam and the way he's been treating the people, it says, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. That's exactly what God said would happen. And so you've got David and Solomon and then Solomon's son Rehoboam. But Rehoboam was such a disaster that Jeroboam, one of Solomon's adversaries, led a revolution. And so now there's a civil war. Now there's two countries. The northern kingdom, which is also called Samaria or sometimes called uh, Israel, that became its own country. And sort of fast forward, it didn't last very long. It eventually got completely destroyed. They did nothing but worship idols and break commandments. And God brought judgment on the northern northern tribes, on the northern kingdom, the Assyrian army invaded and flattened that country. But we are going to follow, none of those kings to the north were descendants of David. We're going to follow the line of the tribe of Judah, the southern uh, kingdom. So there's, there's Rehoboam. Now look at uh, chapter 15. This is Rehoboam's son, uh, Abijam. So we'll bring Abijam up on our uh, chart here. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 1. Right in the middle of the verse it says, Abijam began to reign over Judah. Verse 2. And he walked in all the sins of his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. So here we have this. It's a bad trend. David was a good king. Solomon started out good but ended bad. Rehoboam was bad. Abijam was bad. But look at verse 4. Nevertheless, for David's sake... The Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. God remembered his promise. And for David's sake, even though Abijam was unworthy, God kept him there. Then fast forward to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings uh, chapter 8. As we get to, uh, as we flow into 2 Kings, let's bring up the next slide. So there's, there's a good king, a king like a Jehoshaphat, but Jehoshaphat's son, uh, Jehoram, was, was another disaster. 2 Kings 8 verse 16, it says, right in the middle of the verse, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. And look down at verse 18. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done Ahab and Jezebel, they were that evil couple. They were from the northern tribe. And Jehoshaphat, even though he was a good king, he started a marriage alliance with the northern tribe. 
He brought all these evil people right into his family and encouraged his sons and daughters to marry them. And so Jehoram started living more like the northern tribe. It says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 19, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. Why? For the sake of his servant David. Since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Even though the country is falling apart under these bad kings, God is looking back to, he's faithful to fulfill his promise. He's looking back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now look at 2 Kings chapter 11. 2 Kings chapter 11. And while you're turning there, ladies, did you know that the history of, the, of, of God's people, of the tribe of Judah, isn't just a history of kings, that there also was a queen? And you might think, well, that's pretty cool we had a queen. The problem is she was an evil queen, like a Narnia-type queen. <laughs> so 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now when Athaliah, now that's a beautiful-sounding name, isn't it? Why don't we have more people named Athaliah? Because she was an evil queen. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, her son died, one of the kings of the north, Jehu, assassinated him. When she saw that he was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. Here's what I mean when I say evil. I mean she's destroying the royal family. I mean nieces and nephews. I mean, I mean brothers and sisters-in-law. I mean probably children. So that she... She married into the family from the north. She's not from the tribe of Judah. She's not a descendant of David. She's from the evil empire to the north. And she's systematically wiping out the offspring of David. But Jehosheba, who's an awesome person with a crummy name, the daughter of King Joram, a sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. He's got a, so this is a little boy, a tiny little boy. He is the last surviving offspring of David. Think about this. The fulfillment of God's promise is hanging in the balance with a toddler. And, and, and so they, they hide him. They, they, they put him in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years hidden in the house of the Lord. And Athaliah reigned over the land. She was queen for six years. And little Joash, let's plot, plot this on our, our timeline here. So there's Athaliah and then little uh, uh, Joash is hiding. And so Athaliah, she's going around trying to kill everyone and she's asking her servants, you know, have we killed everyone yet? Wasn't there that other little rug rat? Shouldn't we? No, 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 no. You, you killed him already. He, he's already dead. Well, how come I hear row, row, row your boat in the next room? Oh, that's nothing. Don't worry. Don't worry. There's, there's no children, nothing to see here. So they managed to hide him right under this evil queen's knows this is, this is the faithfulness of God. And so eventually a, a priest named Jehoiada brings Joash out of a hiding. He's still a, practically a child. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 23, when they reveal there is actually a living offspring of David, the promise is not dead. It says all the assembly made a covenant with the king, behold, or, sorry, covenant with the king in the house of God. And Jehoiada said to them, behold the king's Son, let him reign, and notice this, as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. Let this little boy reign, 
because God made a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that the sons of David would reign, that David would not lack a man on his throne. Now turn to 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings 19, and let's bring up the chart here again. We're going to learn about King Hezekiah. And as you're looking at the chart, you're going to see that Hezekiah's lifetime lines right up with when Assyria came and demolished the northern kingdom. Now, the Assyrians, they, they were just like a buzzsaw. They were just, they were just destroying everything in their path. And they just came down and wiped out the northern kingdom. And they kept moving south. And they were about to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. They had Jerusalem surrounded. And they're chirping across the wall saying, don't pray. God won't save you. Look at the size of our army. But also notice that Hezekiah's life also lined up to when Isaiah was writing Isaiah. Isaiah comes later in the Bible, but in the flow of how things were happening, Isaiah was the main prophet. And in 2 Kings 19, this is what God says to Hezekiah through Isaiah. The city is surrounded. God says in 2 Kings 19, 34, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. And notice this, for the sake of my servant David. God's like, I'm not going to let this city get destroyed because I made a promise. And then... God miraculously intervenes. He says an angel destroys the armies all, uh, all around. And the peop- they're miraculously preserved as the Assyrians go out running. And then we get to the end of the book of 2 Kings. Things just get worse and worse. As you carry on the history, there's just bad king after bad king. Josiah was sort of a, a, a brief uh, light in the midst of darkness. He was a good king until we get to Je- Jehoiachin. He's also a bad king, a wicked king, an evil king. And God eventually says, you know what, enough is enough. And the discipline now is getting more and more severe. And so God allows the Babylonians to come and they surround the city and they actually destroy the city and they destroy the temple. And Jehoiachin, the, the king, is actually taken into exile. There's one other king after him, uh, Zedekiah. But what happens to Jehoiachin is really interesting. At the end of 2 Kings, after the destruction of all of the, um, of all of the city and all the carnage, In 2 Kings 25, 27, it says this. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. He had been in prison for 37 years. Notice this, act of grace on God's part. In the 12th month, in the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach. That's not a name we're using too much anymore either. Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin. King of Judah from prison. God in his sovereignty made someone named evil do something nice. Verse 28, and he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above all the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. So even with exile, what seemed like the end was not the end. And God was faithful. He looked after the offspring of David, even in the midst of exile. Now, I mentioned how Isaiah was prophesying right around the time of Hezekiah. 
Isaiah predicted all of this. Like he specifically predicted long before it happened. Babylon was not even a powerful nation. He predicted that Babylon was going to come and, and destroy the city of uh, Jerusalem and take the people into exile. So Isaiah was prophesying. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. So you're going to be, you're going to be, you're in 2 Kings right now, and then 1st and 2nd uh, Chronicles, then Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and then Isaiah, okay? So basically just hit Psalms and then keep moving, and you'll eventually find the book of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. So long before this ever happened, Isaiah was making these predictions, saying that the nation is actually going to be destroyed. And he's using this lumberjack imagery. And he, he talks about the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, as being axes in the hands of God. And that there being these mighty lumberjacks who are chopping down nations and kingdoms. And he talks about the, the, the reign of David's offspring being like a tree. And, and Isaiah predicts, he says, that tree is going to be chopped down. And that brings us to Isaiah chapter 10. And Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. Right after he said that, there, that the tree is going to be chopped down, this is what Isaiah says in chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse is David's father. And so the stump of Jesse is, is the line of David. Why is it a stump? Because David's descendants, his offspring, were evil. And they were judged. This is the discipline that God spoke about in uh, 2 Samuel 7. But what, what's a shoot? A shoot is just like, just the sign, just a tiny little twig of growth. Have you ever had that happen? You know, you, you, you chop down a tree or you, you, you think that you weed out something in your, uh, in your garden or in your yard. And then there's just these little signs of growth. And so Isaiah says, the 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 reign of David and his offspring is being chopped down like a tree. But he says, a shoot is going to come up. This tiny little unsuspecting sense of hope. There will be another offspring of David that is coming. Now turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 and verse 5. Let's bring 2 Samuel 7 back on the screen. Remember, this is... This is what God said. I'll be like a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. God said that he would discipline the kings. If the kings were not following God's way, that they would be disciplined with rods. They, they, they would experience beating, that they would experience discipline. But Isaiah didn't just prophesy with a message for the kings. He prophesied with a message for the people. You see, because we can think that all our problems in our society today, it's all political. If we just had the right leaders in place, all of our problems, that's not true. The problem is not all with our leaders. The problem is with us. And in Isaiah 53, in light of this passage, this idea of the, the king, the ruler, because of his iniquity, getting hit with rods, experiencing stripes, then Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. This passage says when he commits iniquity, Isaiah is saying, no, this, this leader is going to come and he is going to be punished, not for his own iniquity, but for our iniquity. He was going to be punished in our place because this isn't just a problem with the kings. This is a problem with 
all of humankind. So that's, a, that's what Isaiah has to say about this promise that God had made. Now turn to the next book in your Bibles, the book of Jeremiah, and bring back the, the chart here. Jeremiah wrote after Isaiah, during the reign of Josiah, right up until when Jehoiachin was brought into exile. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because the nation is falling apart as he's prophesying. He keeps calling them to repent. And no one, I mean no one, is listening to him. But then even though Jeremiah is prophesying in the midst of all of this disaster and everything is being destroyed, listen to the hope-filled words in Jeremiah chapter 33. Chapter 33, verse 14. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He speaks back to that promise. What gave them hope in the hard times? It was the promises of God. What gives us hope in hard times? It's the promises of God. Verse 15, in those days at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Look down at verse 17 now. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Even when Jeremiah was looking at these wicked and evil kings who were doing wicked and evil things, Jeremiah knew there's got to be another king coming. Because God promised that someone was coming who was going to sit on David's throne forever. The next book in your Bible is the book of Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. And if we look at where Ezekiel fits on this chart, Ezekiel was prophesying while the people were in exile. And so he's like an exile prophet. As as the the, the city's being destroyed, they've been brought into uh, exile. This is what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 34. Look at verse 15. He says, this is God speaking through Ezekiel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. So God says, you know what, I'm going I'm to take over. I'm going to be the one that's going to rule. I'm going to be the shepherd. I'm going to lead the people. But then look at verse 23. He says, and I will set up over them one shepherd. And he already said who the shepherd's going to be, right? The shepherd's going to be God. But he says, I'll set over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. So who is it, Ezekiel? Is is God going to be their shepherd? Or is David going to be their shepherd? Because you say in one sentence, it's the same chapter that God's going to be the shepherd. Now you're saying that, no, it's going to be a descendant of David. Who is it going to be? And so this mystery through exile and when the people come back into the promised land. And and the people are, are waiting, wondering, how is God going to be our shepherd? And how is that going to fit with David being our shepherd? And how is that ultimately going to fulfill 2 Samuel chapter 7? So now let's turn to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. These are the first words of the New Testament. And look at how the New Testament begins. Of all the things that could be said about Jesus Christ, all the, all the statements that could be made about him, this is how the New Testament begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Bam! There's the offspring. You see, there's a king that's greater than Solomon and there's a house that's greater than the temple. Jesus Christ is the son of David. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, 
You know, Joseph just found, his, found out his fiancée's pregnant. He's trying to decide uh, what to do. Matthew 1, verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Joseph's the son of David, so Jesus, this child, because Mary has married into uh, Joseph's uh, family, she marries into the Davidic line, and so Jesus will be a son of David, but also he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, so he's not just son of David, he's son of God. So he is how the mystery of Ezekiel 34, of how can David and God both shepherd? They can because God will become a man, the son of David, Jesus Christ, and he will rule and reign on his throne forever. And so we see the same thing. The angel Gabriel said the same thing to Mary in Luke chapter 1, 32 uh, to uh, 34, I think. Can we get Luke chapter 1 up on the screen? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Son of the Most High, yet David is his father. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel Gabriel tells Mary that her child in her womb is the fulfillment of the promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 23. Matthew 12, 23, Jesus starts walking around, he's teaching, he's performing miracles. Look at how the people respond when they see what he's doing. It says, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? They never, heard, they never got a message from the angel, but they're putting two and two together. They're seeing the way that Jesus was teaching, the way that he was healing, all the amazing things that he was doing, and they're putting it together. They're saying, this guy must be the fulfillment of the promise. He is the son of David. Go to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, verse 9. Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. They're waving palm branches in the, in the air. And what do they say to him? As they're realizing, this is the Messiah, what do they say? Matthew 21, verse 9, the crowds that went before him and that followed him in were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! It all points back to 2 Samuel 7. Then go to Matthew 22 and find verse 41. Matthew 22 Verse 41, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, verse 42, What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees say, He's the son of David. And then Jesus, you know, said, talks about a psalm about how, how David called his son my Lord. And again, Jesus is bringing together this idea that he is God and man. He is God in the flesh, the son of God and the son of David. But then, those same Pharisees who are having that conversation, one week later, they're conspiring to have Jesus crucified on the cross. And talk about the promise being held in the balance. Talk about it seemed like God's not going to fulfill what he, had, what he had said would happen. How can, he, how can he reign on the throne forever when he's hanging on a cross? But that was the moment where he was fulfilling Isaiah 53. He was being crushed for our iniquities. He was being disciplined for our Sin Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And he died and he was buried and he rose again to indestructible life. And so then you get to the book of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 2, the first Christian sermon ever given. Acts chapter uh, 2 in your, uh, in your New Testament. 
Acts 2, verse 25. This is the first Christian sermon ever preached. And the very first sermon ever preached points back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Look at verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Look at verse 29. David now, he's, he read the passage. Now he's preaching on it. Here's what he says. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So when David says you won't abandon my soul to the grave, that couldn't be that David would never die. It couldn't be about Solomon. It couldn't be about any of the other kings because they all died. All of their tombs were there. But look at verse 30. But being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. When did God swear to an oath with David? 2 Samuel 7. Verse 31. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he see corruption. He's he's preaching a sermon on Psalm 16 about the resurrection. The, the, The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of David. Now, so we've gone through the Gospels. We've gone through the book of Acts. Now let's go to the very end. Let's go to the last chapter of the book of Revelation. And while you're turning there, I'll just remind you that in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the son of David. 2 Timothy 2.8 calls him the offspring of David. Hebrews 1.5 quotes 2 Samuel 7 and says it's talking about Jesus. Revelation 5.5, when the scroll, they're wanting to open the scroll, which is like the title deed of, of planet Earth. It's like the unfolding of everything that's going to happen in the end times. And, and no one can open the scroll. And John starts crying. And then someone tells him, weep no more because the root of David has conquered. The descendant, the offspring of David has conquered. Now we come to the very end of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible, the last words of, of Jesus Verse 16, Jesus himself is speaking. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you about these things for the churches. And then look what he says. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He's the descendant and he's the root. So he's the source from which the promise comes and he is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. He is the son of God and the son of David, the root and the descendant, the offspring, the long-awaited offspring. Now let's turn back in our Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. Now that we've gone through the entire Bible, how then should we respond? If there is a God who has made this kind of a promise and has been so faithful over centuries to fulfill that promise... How, how then should we respond? On this end of it, we've seen the whole, the whole play out. We've seen it all unfold right before our eyes. David just had the very idea. And look at how David responded. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. I think it's really important to recognize that he sat. You know, David was ready to stand up and get something done. Let's build this temple, man. Let's lay the foundation. Let's get the beams up, get some materials, bring in the contractors. I got an idea for the carpet color. Here we go. He wanted to stand up and get to work, but no, he sat. 
It's not even that he was on his knees asking that God would do something for him. No, no, no. Because God had already told him what he was going to do. And so how does David respond? He just sat. He just He just sat in in awe, and he didn't need to ask God for anything. He didn't feel like he needed to do anything for God. He just sat in the stillness of the moment and reflected on the goodness of God in making this kind of a promise. When's the last time you just sat? Where you just allowed the reality of who God is and what he has chosen to do and his faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. When's the last time you just sat? And then while he's sitting, David offers a humble prayer. So there's a noble plan, there's an eternal promise, and there's a humble prayer. And here's what he prays. Verse 18, who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes. Everything that, to to bring him this far, this was a small thing. Beating Goliath, escaping Saul. It was a small thing, O Lord. He says, you have spoken also of your servant's house. There's that word house again. For a great while to come. He says, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. David says, this is something that the rest of the world needs to know. And that's why we have on our banners right over here that we're called to make disciples of all nations. This promise is too great for us to keep to ourselves. This is, this is this, yeah, we do sit for, for a moment and take in the grace of God, but then we go, don't we? We go because this is instruction for all mankind. We want the world to know about this. Verse 21, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness. LeBron James didn't know what greatness is, didn't know what it was to be welcomed into a house. God brought about all of this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord, and there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And so we're going to conclude our service today with a song, and Jameson and Jaleesa are, are going to come out onto the platform, and they're, they're going to lead us in a song. Normally, when there's a song at the end of the service, we, we stand up, don't we? Uh, but right now, in the spirit of this passage, we're actually going to sit. And uh, they're, going to, they're just going to sing a song over us that, that asks the same question that David asked, who am I that I should be the recipient of this kind of greatness. And so let me uh, pray for us now as we prepare to respond to God's incredible goodness in fulfilling his promise. Heavenly Father, who are we? Who are we that we would stand on on this side of the cross and be able to know and understand, to hold Bibles in our hands, to see how your plan has unfolded for centuries, Lord? Not just a promise that is for David, but a promise that is for us. Lord, you put all of this in in motion. You carried out your promise, Lord, through all all of the ups and downs so that you could rescue and save us, sinners in rebellion towards you, so that we could be made your sons and daughters, so that we could be adopted into your royal family. And so, God, we marvel at Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
and the son of David. Be with us now. Be present with us. May your spirit wash over us and instruct us as we contemplate who you are and then who we are, that you would be so gracious towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.